Costs to originate keep rising, even with more technology in the industry. The problem is the core platform. A new LOS can re-architect the process around data, not humans moving paper files. Vesta has built this LOS, and you can learn more at Vesta.com. Welcome, everyone. Today on Housing Wire Daily, I'm joined by lead analyst Logan Motoshami to talk about the latest jobs report, what the next recession will look like, late cycle lending, why the effects of inflation today are so much different than in the 1970s, and more. Logan, welcome back to the podcast. It is great to be here, Sarah. Great to be here with you. And this is, we are recording this on Jobs Friday, which I know is always one of your favorite days. So tell us about what you see in this jobs report and what's different than what maybe people are focusing on. So there's been a lot of a talk about a recession that started in January of 2022 because of negative GDP. But historically speaking, you don't have a job loss recession within the first six months when employment is growing month to month as well as industrial production as well. Uh, Real sales are held up and uh, incomes uh, taken away, transfer payments have held up. So we're we're not in a recession, no matter what anybody says in terms of uh, the GDP data. Um, However, for myself, uh, uh, five of my six recession red flags are up. Uh, During the month of June, uh, I raised the fifth recession red flag as the builder's confidence has been fading with higher mortgage rates. Of course, they're going to slow down production of housing. Um, and now in this jobs report, the headline number was a beat, right? 372,000. Some people that were making whispers that it would be a big negative number. No, that, that didn't happen. But we're starting to see some of the internal data uh, um, and, and naturally, when you've created so many jobs uh, in, in such a short time, the growth rate uh, uh, of jobs can be slowing down. And of course, when you have five of the six recession red flags up, you're a little bit more mindful of, of any rate of change. So in, in the article, I, I try to highlight certain things that uh, are, are things that I'm keeping an eye on. And number one, uh, job openings, of course, has been a big thing big theme of my work since uh, early in the in, in the recovery, believing that job openings could get to 10 million uh, before we even uh, broke over 7 million. The job openings data is still historically very large, but it's also had a significant drop um, recently. The employment to population data uh, for prime age workers, which is the only thing I really uh, track in that, in, in that regard, um, it dropped a little bit. Uh, the unemployment rate for those that uh, have uh, less than a high school education, that picked up a little bit. Of course, some people can say, well, the labor force is picking up. That, in a sense, didn't happen. So there are things that are internally in the jobs data to kind of match the rising of jobless claims from a very low level. The things that I'm more mindful of at this stage uh, which I wouldn't even think about, you know, during the, during, you know, in 2021, we had these, uh, we, there's always two or three jobs reports that miss big. And last year we had some missed jobs reports and people made too much of a deal about it. The internals of the data were still looking great. So now we're starting to be a little bit more mindful of the internals of this jobs report. And, and in the article, the charts could kind of show it. So positive jobs, there's no recession in the first six months, of course, of 2022, but uh, things to keep an eye on going out in the future because we're in this again we're in this massive tug of war right now between should the Fed is the Fed going to still raise rates or where's bond yields going where's mortgage rates going 
Are we going into recession? When are rates are going to fall? Stuff like that. And it's 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 a little bit more interesting now at this state because the one thing that's going to happen soon is uh, uh, one of the the big labor call that I did uh, uh, early in the expansion was that we should get all the jobs back by September of 2022. And with this report, uh, with three months left, you know, July, August, and September. We only need about 191,000 jobs created. Uh, so we're in that ballpark range that this could happen. And kind of right on cue, we're, we're going to get there. But then we have to look forward, you know, uh, uh, for the uh, economic expansion and when does the next recession hit. Well, you read my mind. I was about to ask you my next question was going to be like, now now let's talk about that uh, call you made back um, on your America's Back Recovery Model. Or maybe it was later than that, but when you said September of 2022 was going to be that that time, are you optimistic about that? Yeah, I, I even even with my five of the six recession red flags, we're 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 so close, right? Uh, uh, but it's it, it is weird, uh, just historically speaking, that w- I'm literally almost on recession watch right when we hit the employment date, and 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 a lot of my work over the years, I've never been a big jobs growth person. Uh, if people read my work before 2020, I've always had the lowest amount of job gains just because population growth is slowing. I, 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 I admittedly hate the labor force participation data. I think it's one of the most useless economic data lines people track. The notion that American citizens have been sitting at home since 1940 and not working ever uh, or how it's phrased in that manner that we had this massive jobs recovery and people are still sitting at home collecting checks that they got. No, it doesn't work that way. Not everyone works, right? Not everyone needs to work, right? There's the, the civilian labor force. If you look at it, everything looks kind of right. Um, but by September of 2020, adjusting to population growth, adjusting to what jobs trends should be, we're there. And now we're we're going to get to a phase to where uh, even after the let's let's say we have a recession and a recovery and not much really moves on the jobs data, we're not a big job growth country anymore. Uh, we're, we're we're just gaining back all these jobs that we lost. Uh, of course, I believe uh, two hundred eighty thousand Americans that were in the prime age labor force that were workers died of COVID, and the baby boomers are leaving the workforce every day, and people are dying. And you have to replace them, and uh, and then the total demand growth is there. So uh, the job openings data was naturally going to be big. So we're we're kind of in this really unique phase to where I'm looking for the last recession red flag, and we're going to hit the September data uh, right there. So it's it's fascinating in that in that aspect. That's how fast the recovery has been on the labor market side, which was not the case after the Great Financial Recession. It took forever to get all the jobs back. Well, let's talk about that recession model. So you've had five flags up. You put the fifth one up after the last jobs report. Still still watching for the sixth one, still being mindful of that. What are you looking for there? So the leading economic index, as it states itself, uh, is uh, historically speaking, this index falls four to six months. Uh, and if you look at the components, this is why I always tell people you have to know the components of each index and how it's weighted. I know I'm a total nerd, but still, um, you can kind of see that this index should be falling, right? Uh, in the next few months, it's already had two months of slights decline. So when we get four out of six months 
uh, that's when I could, in theory, raise the last recession red flag. And these are progression models. They are terribly boring. They're not exciting. They're not designed to be exciting. They're decided to be boring because boring can be good. Um, but once we get that flag raised, it doesn't necessarily mean the recession is here. It's just that we can officially look now at uh, recessionary data. A good example was all my six recession red flags were up in 2006 toward the end. Recession didn't happen until 2008. So there can be a lag time. Each cycle is different and unique, uh, of course, with its own internal data line. So uh, I'm almost there, but uh, I haven't raised the red flag uh, yet. You know, housing permits, jobless claims, manufacturing new orders, credit indexes. These are the things that are part of that leading economic index. There's 10, 10 different funds. Uh, it's in the article. So these are the things I'm tracking live before the data actually gets printed out. When when you had this recession model and, and you were raising that red uh, those red flags and you were you were flagging that for two thousand six, did you did you think it was going to be as bad as it was? I I wasn't writing until twenty ten, so uh, I, I never I, I I never had any of this uh, social media discussion. I always talk about uh, economic cycles in terms of where is the overheating sector. And what you don't want ever is consumer leverage debt, right? Like crypto crashing, it's not that big of a story, really, in terms of the economic cycle. When the tech bubble burst in 2000, not really that big. You know, we lost two and a half million jobs, but it, it wasn't really that impactful. But consumer leverage debt, right, especially with housing, when you break down the internals of how debt is structured. That's a really big deal because why debt deleveraging on consumer debt takes time, right? It's not like the stock market. The stock market could crash like this in seconds and, and the velocity isn't that long lasting because margin debt falls with it. Uh, consumer debt took forever. And as you can see, it, it took so long to deleverage a lot of that uh, household debt uh, through foreclosures and short sales and bankruptcies. Uh, here, we don't have the, I mean, household debt looks excellent, right? Uh, uh, if you look at uh, how majority of consumer debt is mortgage debt, mortgage debt is a fixed debt payment. There's no recast worry. So the next recession is going to be different uh, uh, in that regard, because I always focus on the consumer. What does the consumer have? There's simply not enough people that own crypto that got burned. That's going to matter to these giant U.S. economy. Jobs and wages and employment, uh, those are that's more powerful than, than crypto, right? Uh, so uh, much different than the credit leverage cycle of 2006. And, and you can make a little bit more of a correlation to the 2000 uh, uh, recession because uh, the, the wealth effect, uh, the tech boom back then, the, the tech boom again here that we're seeing the, the hit on. So it, it, it's not shocking that you could have a sector like crypto and tech be crashing down and we're still creating jobs, right? Uh, um, the investment needed in tech stocks or in crypto is not like the investment that you have in, you know, the real estate industry where construction jobs and houses and all the two different, two different types of recession. So I'm not looking at all for the type of household debt leverage that needs to be uh, deleverage, as we saw from 2006. Uh, now it's it's going to be, you know, the companies that were booming because of COVID 
are coming back to reality. Those are the areas that you you will see the most damage in. That's why the fourth recession red flag highlights the durable goods spending, which is still up 10% year over year. It's crazy. Uh, those sectors that have uh, uh, demand that cannot be sustained, I always use the Peloton example, crashing demand, too much inventory, fire 20% of the workforce, stuff like that. Uh, uh, and how big the scale is to the majority of the workforce, because most people are always working. Uh, so no, we don't have the the credit leverage bubble that we saw from 2002 to 2005. This The next recession will be much different than that. Kind of think about the 2000 uh, recession uh, in that light. And I know the inflation data is, is much hotter than we had in recent history. But again, unless the Russian war becomes a, a war with China versus Taiwan or, or stuff like that, the economics of it is we're starting to see supply increase uh, demand fade, which should cool down the growth rate. Inflation is always growing, but we're talking about the growth rate, and things start to get back to normal. Uh, and, and during that normal process, there will be damages done to certain sectors and certain groups of people. But uh, in big scale terms, the household balance sheets, we still have $2 trillion of excess savings uh, in, in the economy from that. So much different than the, the credit buildup in 2002 to 2005. And I know that's one of your key points, why you're like, housing is not crashing. <laughs> For housing to crash, all these people would have to be like, wow, I have all this equity in my home and I have such a, a low fixed debt. I'm going to sell it and go rent, which doesn't make any sense. Yeah, it's, 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 it's interesting. Even for someone like myself that I've always talked about, you know, housing can change once the 10-year yield gets above 1.94%, right? We see home sales falling. We see inventory increasing. For me, that's balance. And as part of team higher rates, that's what I want to see because the housing market has to be a functioning system every single year, you know, uh, for decades. Uh, the crisis was the, the, such the hit to affordability because of, uh, 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 of the price growth. But the notion of primary resident homeowners in scale from those that bought homes from 2010 to 2022 Tend to, I mean, the whole the whole forbearance crash bros was to show that these people are not versed in economics. These are professional grifters. That's that's what they do every single day. That's who they decided to be as a person. But um, we don't have to worry about homeowners in that sense. Late cycle lending, which is always a traditional risk, is is always uh, a part of the uh, real estate. But the notion that mass amount of people will foreclose, even though they have equity to be homeless, to rent at a higher cost. This is crazy talk, right? It's always been crazy talk. And it comes from a group of people that do nothing else but talk about housing crashes since 2012. I call them the anti-central bank people, the housing bubble boys 2.0, and the forbearance crash bros. And they've literally spent their middle-aged men life. And let me tell you, as you get older, Life doesn't get easier for you, these guys. It gets more frustrating, right? So you have to realize a vampire that hasn't tasted blood in so long gets a little bit excited. They get, oh, oh, oh my God, I see this stuff on Twitter all the time. You know, uh, and you can understand why they're excited and why they run around with fake names and they run around and just like, you just have to ask her, the lack of fun that these people must have had in their life you know, to sit for like 25 years and talk about housing as a Ponzi scheme and that the Federal Reserve, I mean, these people, the very last day that they will live, 
Before death, they will literally blame the Fed's balance sheet for every miserable thing in their lives. And you don't want to be that person, right? You just want to like, you want to have a life. You want to have a family, kids, and enjoy. You don't want your life to be obsessed about the Federal Reserve. Because trust me, men and women who are listening to this, there is no gold god waiting for you when you die. Okay, there's no gold coins coming to you or whatever, whatever they, they promised you. Enjoy life. Don't make everything about the Federal Reserve. Logan, I, I love when you, I, I love when you go on these rants. Um, <clears throat> I know our audience does, too, because uh, it, it is it is enjoyable to to hear you go off on those. Listen, if, if I was wrong for 11 years, I'm shutting my mouth up and like burying myself in the cave troll that I should live in. OK. I'm just, maybe that's just me, but if I said housing was a bubble from 2012 to 2019, and this is why I wrote that 2019 housing bubble article, I said, guys, don't do this. Don't go there. Okay. I gave the best case for don't go bubble crash. And then when 2020 came, they all jumped in. Why? Because fanatics are always the same. If you look at the history of human civilization, Conspiracy theory people don't ever change. They're like this until death. And they have the same similar sentence structures and behavior tactics uh, for hundreds of years. And this one, for some reason, housing was a Ponzi scheme that people buying homes with a 30-year mortgage, having sex and kids and going to jobs and living with their, that entire process was a Ponzi scheme. And they're all angry middle-aged men that got older. <laughs> End of story, right? End of story. Don't just move on with your lives. Let it go. Uh, all right. Well, we're going to move on to another topic, although that is a fun one, um, about mortgage rates. So lots happening there, right? So, you know, we had that really quick acceleration. It's come back down a little bit. It reminds me of gas prices in that in that way. But, you know, you're tracking the 10-year yield. You're looking at how those things move in concert. So please tell us what is happening with rates right now. So uh, it was interesting this week, they showed mortgage rates getting back down to 5.3% and the 10 year yield had made a reversal higher. So if you actually try to quote yourself, you're not going to, you're not going to see that rate. Uh, Be mindful of weekly rates and where they're going. Um, So this is a good discussion because we've talked about this uh, uh, a lot recently. When mortgage rates got to like six and a quarter, six and a half, the the pricing of mortgage rates and the 10-year yield really took off higher after the Russian invasion. And trying to explain this is actually very complicated. So I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm very adamant on trying to keep this as simple as possible. Mortgage rates in the bond market got well ahead of where the Federal Reserve was going to hike rates. So they were already pricing in a lot of the kind of the worst case scenarios in terms of inflation and growth and everything where the Fed has to catch up. So this is why I always say it's a tug of war because the Federal Reserve isn't going to hike like 3% Fed funds rate, raise it that much. They're going to go through it slowly. So as inflation kept on being uh, persistent, they got a little bit more aggressive from a quarter to half a percent to 75 to another 75. So we're having this fight about when does this finally create a recession? And the 10-year yield is as of Friday, as of right now, is uh, a little bit above 3% right now. So we're basically still below the 2018 lows. In the late 70s and 80s, when energy prices were rising, the Fed was raising rates and everything. We don't have that marketplace, right? If we did, the 10-year yield would be north of five and a quarter. 
uh, uh, right now. It's not doing it. And we already have five of the six recession red flags up. So this is why I always tell people, if you are part of the 7 to 9% mortgage uh, uh, rate category, you cannot be a recessionary person. So the people that really push 7 to 9 mortgage are anti-central bank people. Oh, we are back to them. The mortgage-backed securities. <laughs> who I, uh, yes, yes. And I tell everyone, I, tell everyone I, I, I do this joke on Twitter and people know this. I, t- I encourage every human being, if you really wanted to know this, you go, you look at the 10-year yield and you look at mortgage rates since 1975, that was the year I was born, and they move together. And as a joke, I always say, well, the Federal Reserve sold all their mortgage-backed securities from 1975 to 1981 and rates went up. Then from 1982 all the way down to 2010, they started buying back mortgage. They didn't do any of that, right? So the bond market, you know, that's that's a little bit more important than mortgage-backed securities. So mortgage-backed securities, the pricing, the, the mechanism of rates can can get pretty wild and insane, uh, either to the upside or the downside. But just follow the 10-year yield. So now, you know, the question is, do I think that could rates get above six and a half percent? And Consistently, what, what I've talked about, my fear is always that rates have peaked and they're fall. And then that takes the balance away from housing because I am happy about the supply growth. I want 2019 inventory levels. I refuse to take off the savagely unhealthy housing market theme until that is gone. And case in point, uh, June data, we are talking about June here. June Las Vegas data down 24% year over year. In home sales. June year-over-year home prices in Las Vegas up 21%. This was the fear. This is why I said you have to be careful about inventory in this period of time because bad things could happen. That is a horrible data line. In the previous expansion, when we had higher inventory, rates rose, the price growth was still there, but it was like low single digits. Right here, we're having double-digit gains still. Why? Because we're not back to 2019 levels. So Higher rates are a good thing. We need inventory to get back. And then we have a functioning marketplace, right? It's hard for the marketplace to really be too uh, normal functioning. And we see this in the data. We see the Redfin, the realtor, we're still showing double-digit growth. Higher rates do work. They just need time, right? And uh, uh, unfortunately, we we got caught in a really bad position. But as rates were falling down, a lot of people got, you know, oh, here, housing's coming back again, lumber prices up. No. Follow that ten-year yield, and for me personally, the longer we stay away from one point nine four percent on the ten-year yield, the better balance you'll get in housing. When yields start to really fall, I mean, when they break, they break. They're not breaking; they're just kind of having this little tug of war between two point eight zero percent to three and a half. And we're just here right now. But if they break, and rates go back below 4%, not what I want to see until we get back to 2019 levels. So uh, I, I know it, it, it looked like on paper there could have been a 1% move lower in rates. And technically, if you timed it perfectly, I guess that that would be true. But, but be careful of the weekly data. Uh, follow the 10-year yield. Because guess what? The 10-year yield reversed recently. Uh, and rates should be higher uh, because of that. And just kind of go off of that. But again, if you are part of the seven to nine percent mortgage uh, crew, that's fine. Everyone has their own view. You cannot be a recessionary person, right? Because mortgage rates staying at seven to nine percent, and then we have a job loss recession with everything falling, doesn't seem likely. 
And since we're, I already have five of my six recession red flags, I can't believe in that. So that's why I said that six and a quarter, six and a half, that could be the peak. And the concern is rates coming back down. They have come back down, but nothing to the matter that I don't think I, I could still get my balance, right? Uh, we could still get inventory to raise. And it's one of the reasons why I've recently talked about, I believe we can get to 2019 uh, uh, inventory levels next year, as long as rates stay higher and things kind of take their course. but. Um, the one thing that will change that is lower mortgage rates, or it, it can slow the growth down of inventory and possibly reverse it. And that, that's, for me personally, what I don't want to see. And that's why I've had that consistent theme of being part of team higher rates, but showing conviction on why I want that to kind of uh, still take its course. Well, let's talk about when you say higher rates, team higher rates and all that. What does that mean to you? Is that threshold five? Five percent is that threshold? Uh, five and a half. Like what? What is higher rates? Right. I mean that can that can change. What does that mean to you? So this 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 goes back to February of 2021, where we wrote that article for House and Wire. I said, man, we need higher rates to cool this down. While everybody was saying forbearance is going to crash the market. Oh, don't you know? No, it's just forbearance crash those those people. Um, by January of this year, it w- it became very evident how not only unhealthy the housing market was, savagely unhealthy. The worst housing market I've seen post-2010. We literally had forced bidding, too many people chasing too few. The only way this changes is we need higher rates. So threw in the towel, said nothing else matters for housing until we get higher rates to kind of end this. And it happened, right? Uh, uh, you know, We saw global yields, which to me is more important. I know a lot of people say it's oh, if the Russian invasion didn't happen, rates wouldn't go higher. No, we had global yields rising before that. So rates would have gone up. They probably would have gone up much slower. The Russian invasion, in a sense, uh, uh, facilitated the speed of rates getting up faster. So four to five percent rates weren't really changing the dynamics as much as people thought. And even to myself this year, I thought, wow, when when the 10-year yield breaks above. 1.94, we get this purchase application data should be down 18 to 22%. We still haven't seen that in the four-week moving average up there. But 5 to 6% rates will do it, and it creates a buffer. So the longer we stay above 5, the more balance we get. Once we get back down, it's you know, kind of the, the low fours, that's where I get, oh, no, we're doing it again. You know, So I just feel much more comfortable. When using the NAR data, we can touch 1.93 million on, on total units available, which is the four-decade low of inventory before uh, the COVID crisis happened. And that's it. I, I'm I'm done with my inventory concern. Like we had plenty of homes to buy from 2012 to 2019, uh, and didn't have this accelerated. Uh, price growth or this forced bidding action. So I'm I'm completely fine with that. When we got below uh, 1.52 million was the concern, and the timing of it was also the concern as well. That's when we uh, uh, we broke to these levels right in 2020 to 2024. That was always oh boy, we've got to watch out. If this happens, this could get bad because this is the period in time where we have a little bit more people looking for homes than we did in the previous expansion. And we it's not only just home prices, we see it in rent as well, right? And guess what? Home prices accelerated, rates rise. Oh, people need to rent longer. So we just got we just got hit in a terrible way on both sides of the housing inflation story. When people talked about 
housing deflation for so long and that housing inflation was fake news. And we're about to have a deflationary collapse because the Federal Reserve was created in 1913. It's like, no, that's not how it works. So higher rates, good thing, positive inventory, good going up, positive balance market is a good thing. And uh, so far, it's still holding up, right? It's still holding up. And we just need a little bit more time and we should get our way back to just 2019 levels, which is the four decade low before COVID. I appreciate that. And I appreciate us sticking a stake in the ground saying 5% is the official higher rate that that's needed. I, actually, you know what? Four, going consistent with my work, 4.5% and higher creates balance. Historically, that, that has been the case in the previous expansion. The difference now between, um, now between the previous is that home price growth broke my model, right? That's, this is why I've always stressed, if we just grew at 23%, we'd be okay. And boy, that was a Hulk smash within two years. They just destroyed my model. It's like, oh, you people ruined everything. So uh, that's why the variables change. So Four and a half percent or higher would create balance. That was the systematical thing that we've used in the previous expansion to keep things at bay. And now, because home price growth is so much more, it becomes more problematic. But again, that can facilitate balance because balance is a good thing. So yeah, uh, we used to have that in the previous expansion where four to five percent would the rate of growth would cool, but above four and a half percent, you really start to see the cool down in housing. Here, on top of higher rates, we got unbelievable home price growth. And we're still seeing home price growth this year. And it sucks. It's savagely unhealthy. And I hate it. And I just want some balance. And that's why I'm part of Team Higher Rates, which gets, I get tomatoes and cabbages and carrots thrown at me all the time because people say, no, we need. So it's it's been a, it's been a hard thing to defend. But I, I defend it on the principle that when people come to me and say, well, we can't build more homes, that we need rates at 3 to 4% for the builders to build homes. Okay, fair enough. But if it's at the expense of home prices for the existing home sales going up 15 to 20%, that's not a good trade-off. And that's, that's where I hold my stake on the ground. I say, prove to me that that's a good trade-off, uh, that we need this. And this is the unfortunate aspect of 2020 to 2024. The one thing that I was worried about happened. So I have to adjust to that. I can't just sit here and put my head down and go, oh, that'll be fine. Uh, no, it wasn't fine. And we see the damage there. Logan, as always, thank you for being on. Always a pleasure. And we will talk again in a few days. I mean, things are happening so fast. We're having you on twice a week just to try to keep up. Sarah, it's always a pleasure to be here. And of course, I've always got something to say. Uh, of course, we appreciate it. All right. Thank you. How have the 2022 housing market forecast changed? Or how is the industry navigating the shift to a purchase-driven market? HousingWire's premium content program, HW+, answers questions like these and offers a variety of member-exclusive benefits that are tailored to what you need to stay competitive and agile in today's fast-paced market. Go to housingwire.com forward slash membership to join today. With your HW Plus membership, you get access to longer form digital content, the Housing Wire magazine, member exclusive rates to in-person events like Housing Wire Annual, and more. Thanks for listening to Housing Wire Daily. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to take a minute to rate the show and leave a comment. And make sure to tune in tomorrow for more news and insight.